And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Motel 6, it's Jonathan the Strong, Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! No, 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 no. That's fine, that's no, fine. No, it's not fine, it's not fine. You work out why, I'll do it again, and then you see what was different, okay? It's important, it's not rhythm, it's not melody, it's content, Gary. And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strong and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Liza Grand Trombi on the Coochie Podcast. See, it's all about And content. welcome back, Liza. We're off. We that's like we should have we should have this sounds like a horse race. This is turning into a horse race. I know. We, they're like confetti guns going off. I know, exactly. I, I listened to your last was it last week? Yeah. That we was only much Oh, look. I was jet lagged. I was just back from Italy. And, you know, you look at it going, yeah, here we go. It's fine. We came back. It's great to talk to you. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi. It's good to be back. What's been happening with you and Locust Land and everything? Um, well, let's see. We went all color. Did you notice? I did. Every single email it I get says, great. we're now in all color. <laughs> At the bottom, right? <laughs> well, because we want to make sure people notice. So sometimes you have to tell... Okay, let, let, let me make a brief consumer complaint about going all color. Because I have this mechanical pencil, but people can't see it. But I have a pencil, and I, I go through the forthcoming list and circle things. And when it was when it was flat paper, my pencil would write perfectly well... On, now, now you've got the slip paper, and my pencil doesn't write on it as well, can, so I can't mark. The book. Can I just say, Gary, you've never sounded older in your life. <laughs> Are you going to take down no, the park I, bench and sit on the park bench with your old friends, and maybe we should put a crossword I've, in? I've been using the same mechanical pencil for forty-five years, <laughs> and it's never failed me once. <laughs> I, I, I finally was able to get rid of my wooden one. I actually. I actually was a little perturbed by that too, but mostly because they didn't say that we were going to all coated stock. They said we're going, yeah. you're going to go to all color, which was great. And then I got it, and I actually don't like the glare, mm. but mm. it looks really nice to be able to see those cut the all the covers in color, oh, and you know it it just makes such a difference, and it opens up. Uh, some of our layout decisions in the past have been like there was an interview in the very front and an interview in the very back, and that was because the color pages fell on the outside of the magazine. Mm. And so right. that forced uh, layout decisions. If you wanted to do a convention, you could do a color insert in the middle, or you could run it in the front and the very back, but you had to split the layout sometimes. And um, So this opens up a lot of new layout options for us and allows us to move things around in a way that is perhaps driven more by what the content is than whether it's a color page or black and white page. Although now that that's gone, and we're like, oh, it was kind of nice when we didn't have a choice. And now we have to have long meetings about how we do it. And sometimes I'm like, oh, just do it as though it's still the old way because (laughs) we don't have time to do all this fiddling around, but it's nice, and now all the ads can be in color. And mm-hmm. So now that you've completed one of the least attractive tasks in in science fiction, moving the Locust Book Collection and offices to a new premises, surely one of the least attractive jobs I can think of doing, um, I guess you must be focused on the lead-up to work on two weeks from now. Yeah, I'm sort of frantically looking at who I'm going to interview and setting up. I didn't go to ReaderCon this year, and so there were four or five people I didn't get to meet, so I'm booking in meetings and sort of despairing about how much time there is in any given day to do things and well, and actually still get to convention. Before we get to the, the, the part of the conversation we're planning on having, I thought I'd ask, because it occurred to me that people may be interested and they don't know, what is the lead up for you for you and for Locus covering Worldcon? You know, as you come up to the event, what are you looking to do with it each year? As far as in the magazine or like what's the me- mechanical thing? I mean most people will be aware you put a magazine out every month. They have no idea what it really yeah. means or what deadline structure you're on or what timelines you're right. on. 
You know, people get annoyed. I mean, I've had it in you know, in, in discussion where people say, well, the book came out in January and I gave you a copy in January. Why didn't you review it like in February? And you're going, well, you're earliest and get in is like April now because it's January and that's just how it goes. And there's mm-hmm. timelines and lead at lunch. So there's that. And we actually have really short lead time for a magazine. Like most, like PW wants a book that's at least three months out. Um, and we'll, we'll turn around and re- review as quickly as we can, but we do have, so the nuts and bolts of it is the sort of six weeks before the publishing date. So the September issue, uh, deadlines for, as you know, but everyone else doesn't, uh, is around the 20th, sort of six weeks back from the pub yeah. date. And then in that time from when we get all of the columns, between getting all the columns and about two weeks before the issue comes out, we just start frantically compiling information, articles. Yeah. Uh, if we're doing con reports, we have to write and get all the numbers and color balance all the photos and make sure we have permissions and lay it all out. And so with the Hugos and the um, Worldcon, it's a question of we have to push back. We have to push back the existing deadline three days so that I can leave and still see the issue finish before we leave because we our deadline's about the middle of the month. So the day before Worldcon starts, I, I've pushed my deadline back three days to that day and then fly out, gather all the pictures, like cover the events, come home, gather all the pictures from all the other photographers, um, make sure we get all of our facts right and all of the ideas as correct as we can. And, um, and punch it all out before basically the 15th of the next month. And then it comes out later. So there is this big, there's this big lag time just because it's print. There's not a, like we are, we have a seven day turnaround with the printer and that's about as fast as it happens. Yeah. Really. For any print magazine, of course. But one of the things that I wonder about, uh, looking at the, at the, at the upcoming Worldcon, the upcoming couple of Worldcons, the past two Worldcons, when I started writing for Locus, it was very clear, it was made very clear to me by Charles Brown that the science fiction year revolved around Worldcon. Worldcon was the end of one year, the beginning of another year. It was the central event in science fiction. And I don't know whether it's the recent difficulties or whether it's because there are so many other interesting conventions and so many other items on the calendar. Is Worldcon still the center of the science fiction year? Well, I, get, I think that greatly depends on who you ask. I, I keep hearing more and more from other people that, you know, no, like Dragon Con is so much more fruitful for them or, or and like invites them and sponsors them to have booths or Comic Con is where everything really happens now or, mm-hmm. you know, there's these sort of differing opinions about where, where does, where does science fiction really meet? And, um, I like to think it's still Worldcon. Because that's the one I want to go to, and that's I want to go see the Hugos, and I want to see all those people, and mm. uh, you know, and that that is it for me. But I think it really depends on who you talk to. I think that there are a lot of people who would say, "Well, I go to ReaderCon because then I see the people I need to see, and I don't see four thousand other people." <laughs> well, that <laughs> is that, you know. And there are people that say that about World Fantasy that say, "Well, that's you know, I'm." I'm a pro, and I will go to see all the pros. And I think if you were a fan, you'd have a different answer. And so um, you got on a plane the day before Worldcon. You fly to the requisite city, unless it's outside of the country. It takes longer. And then what? You just go hang out, go to some panels, take it easy? No. I almost never go to panels, unfortunately. I would like to go to panels. But uh, usually I fly in the day before. I help. One of my staff people set up the table. We load everything in, get them all set up. Um, I probably have 15 to 20 meetings with editors, publishers, agents, authors. Um, it is not all like grueling work. I am friends with a lot of these people now. And so, you know, if I have to go hang out with have dinner with John Berline and Patty Garcia, that is not, you know, a cool task for me. I quite enjoy myself. But um, 
it's a packed schedule. I try to get four or five interviews in. Those take about an hour and a half each with photos. And I have to prep for all those. Um, then we go to the Hugo's and we take photos. We go to the, we go to the parties and take photos, which is not terrible. I mean, it's a, it's really a mix. I think most of the people who are in this field have that, right? Yeah. When it, even when it work, it's still really enjoyable. Otherwise, it's, it's not worth it, you know? I mean, it's really fantastic. Is it for you the way it used to be? I mean, I remember the way it was, and you would remember the way it was, Liza and Gary both, I'm sure, for Charles, where he would be programmed down to every hour of every day for the entirety yes. of the event, or is it a bit more relaxed than that now? Um, I don't know how he did that, frankly, because we would have we'd have like an 8 o'clock breakfast and a 10 o'clock meeting and an 11 o'clock meeting and a 12 o'clock business lunch, and then we do two interviews in the afternoon. And, uh, you know, but to be fair, he would sort of hit 9 o'clock and crash, and he would take a nap in the day, yeah. and that was it. You know, and um, I don't try to jam quite as much in because I just it just breaks me. And then I'm, just, I'm like, done by day three, you know, just from exhaustion. So I don't, I don't do as much early morning stuff, yeah. but I do schedule a lot. Like I know people who are always like, oh, my God, is that your schedule? Like I'll have that Excel spreadsheet and every thing is blocked out. Sometimes I, it's blocked out with breaks. But, yeah. but you know, when I go to the table and try to spell the people that are working at the table. But there's, I mean, I, I think I haven't been to a panel at a WorldCon that I wasn't on in years. Yeah. Now, when it comes to sort of with, with, with science fiction of Palooza just about, about here, we're more than halfway through the year. From your perspective as the editor-in-chief of Locus, who's keeping an eye, uh, you know, an eye on the science fiction field day to day, and I realize a lot of that is actually distracted and looking, well, not distracted, it's focused on running a magazine and dealing with that. But looking at the science fiction field generally, how's your feeling about 2016? Do you have any feeling for it yet? I mean, we are a chunk of the way through. How, how's the year going? You mean the business or the books? Whichever way you want to take it. Let's start with the, the, the business. How do you think the business is going? I mean, there's, there, was, there was good and interesting news from Tor recently about their restructure. It seems optimistic yeah. with, with uh, Macmillan growing that, that company, and you can see information about that online. Um, yeah. That, that sort of thing has to no, be a I, positive that's, that's thing. A real, I think that's a really good positive, you don't see a lot of publishing companies uh, putting extra funds into toward growing businesses that aren't brand new at this point. And so that's a night. Everything else seems like, well, we're going to fold all of the sales teams together into one, or we're going to merge these two imprints. We're going to, sorry, we're going to reorganize mm -hmm. fewer editors. Uh, that's been the news basically for the last seven years, it feels mm -hmm. like. Um and there was some optimism when people were, like, nobody was moving. Nobody was shifting out of their jobs. And when you see people moving around, I think, uh, as far as editors moving to new houses and publicity people are moving around, that feels like a healthier industry from the sort of insider baseball side of it, where inside baseball, where you're getting, you can see people are moving around. It feels like they're comfortable enough to leave a job. Yeah. For a little while, nobody was comfortable with leaving a job. Um but, yeah, no, I mean, I think that that, I'm actually really excited. I think uh, Patrick and Davey heading uh, this sort of managing duo at Tor is is going to be exciting, and I think it's great that they brought, they're bringing in Diana Gill, um, who ran Harper Voyager for years and years and years before going to Random House and then uh, shifting out shortly after. So, it's a. Uh, um, I think that's exciting stuff. I think it is. I don't know about. Uh, you know, I think Saga continues to put out some interesting books, and they seem to be doing well. Which is, you know, it's new, newish at least still in print. So yeah. that's a good thing. I don't. I don't. I can't think of any other news that offhand that's. Yeah. Well, Knopf is certainly showing more interest in science fiction than it did for most of its history, which I think is a good sign. Uh, you have a literary publisher that's 
publishing Paolo Bacigalupi and Daryl Gregory. So uh, that's Tim, Tim O'Connell is the editor there, and he's mm-hmm. definitely got a taste for science fiction and and knows his stuff, which is I think a it's a nice thing. And he's broader than just science fiction as far as what he does, but um, he definitely is is a good science fiction reading editor as far as that goes. He's not just dabbling. So, mm. and, and I guess to, to look at the books, and I will be completely fair, and I will, I will give all of our listeners some context. Having obviously not decided what exactly we're going to talk about, and then having not given anybody the fair chance to prepare so they would give you a coherent and cogent answer, and allowing that I myself would look at you sort of like, uh, and have to think for a little while about this answer. Have you yet seen books that you feel stand out as being the, you know, the year's most important, year's most major books in science fiction, fantasy, horror, the like, over the past six or seven months? I mean, you would have hoped that some of the major books of the year would have come out. And I'm sure there are ones that would occur to us. I mean, to me, you know, one of my very favorite books of the year is Charlie Jane Anders' All the Birds in the Sky from way back in January. And right. I was really engaged by Madeline Ashby's Company Town. And I just recently, about uh, when I was in Tuscany, read Garth Nix's new Old Kingdom novel, Golden Hand, which is coming out, I think, in October, and was terrific. And I've read a sample of others. And there's a batch I have sitting here, you know, I mean, Connie Willis's Crosstalk, which I just realized I have to have read before we get to uh, Kansas mm-hmm. City or various plans will go awry. You know, there are these books which stand out to me as major books and major debuts. The Charlie Jane Anders is a major debut. Yoon Ha Lee's book, um, Nine Dragon Fox, is a major debut. And there are others. Uh, there, are, there are things like uh, Neil Clark having his first year's best come out. All kinds of interesting things. Mm-hmm. Have there been books that strike you as being of interest, of merit, of note uh, over the past six months or so? Um, well, I mean, that's a dirty trick where you, like, ask a question and then say all of the books. <laughs> I, I, I thought I was being good. I didn't think that was a dirty trick. I thought I was hopefully giving you a couple of minutes to sort of think about it because I, I know that the, the fair way to ask this question is when you're in your office in San Leandro and you have the books before you and actually you can make a sort of considered response and have some kind of look because I know that normally just to give read, you know, listeners some context whenever we do a panel about this kind of thing we actually prepare lists and right. we, and think about it so you don't well, sit there and go oh that book since, right. since, 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 since you've been talking I've been thinking oh, good man. Uh, and I've come up and I've come up with, with exactly the opposite of your question um well, I can think of three things. But well, your question was three or four things that are that are major important things this year. There are a lot of things I've seen that I liked a lot this year. I loved uh, the Guy Kay's novel. I loved Francis Harding's novel, The Lie Tree. I liked the uh, Simple Station. But what I've not seen, uh, which I saw last year, the three things: one, um, a big, major, uh, uh, classic writer like Stan Robinson, Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora. I've not seen this year's Aurora. Right. Last no. year saw last year saw a, a, a big, giant, bloated bestseller from Neil Stevenson, uh, which hit the bestseller list, Seven Eves. Not as good, a, certainly not hard science fiction, not as good a science fiction novel, in my opinion, as Aurora by a, by a long shot. And last year we saw The Water Knife, which was on the edge of being a, a marketed as a best-selling thriller, also was good hard science fiction. Uh, now, those are three very different kinds of books, but from the point of view of their position in the market, I have not seen books occupying those positions in the market so far this year. No, I haven't either. And there's a lot of sort of seconds and thirds. You know, we have the thir- third season Lou yeah. book out. We have the second Kent Lou. Right. Uh, Wall Storms. Is that the second one? Yeah. yeah. And then uh, we have, I don't know, it feels like there's a lot of sort of following up. Yeah. Um, yeah, the last Susan Liu novel uh, is coming out. The third um, Dave Hutchinson the, novel. And and then right. there, there are interesting novels from interesting writers who don't fill any of those positions you're quite rightly talking about. Because historically, one of those things you look for is like, what's the dominant science fiction novel for the year? 
Yeah. Which obviously I haven't what, seen that. I've not seeing it on the lists as yeah. far as forthcoming yet. And from what I pick up of it, whatever its strengths may be, I don't think Cross Talk by Connie Willis is going to be that book either. I don't think it, it strives or attempts to be that book. But I don't think it's going it's, to be that uh, year dominating kind of a book. Right. No, I mean, in terms of science fiction. Hmm. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's light. I mean, it's science fictional, but it's light. It's sort of a rom com. Um, yeah. I started reading it because I'm I'm hoping to interview her at Worldcon, but um, I don't think that's it's not that big, you know, space opera or no. And no, it's, it's, it's a Connie Willis novel. It's a Connie Willis screwball comedy, uh, which she does as well as anybody. But it's not addressing the whole field of science fiction. It's, it's, it deals with telepathy, but it uses telepathy as a comic device. It doesn't address a major sort of central core trope of science fiction the way Aurora did with Generation Starships. Uh, or for that matter, the way the Water Knife did with, a, with Environmental Collapse. Um, and I don't, th- there may be things I've missed. There's some, like I say, there are lots of novels I like. Actually, the Environmental Collapse uh, book of the year so far, Jonathan, is actually yours. Eh. Drowned Worlds. Eh. No, it has, it, it covers, it's not a big novel, but it covers the same kind of territory that you see cropping up in the background of many science fiction novels. Here. Yeah, look, I, I mean, foregrounding, I was foregrounding this, an entire I was going to say, I was having this conversation yesterday. I, I think you're going to see more and more over the coming year, you know, couple of years, that climate change will be the primary generator of story in science fiction. Even if it's not central to the story, it will be the background initiator of story over and over. That that I see happening, and I think that's interesting. Um, yeah. But I mean, look, it's also the nature of the science fiction field that you know these things, you know, sort of cycle through in years. It's like we say, well, there isn't a major dominating science fiction novel yet this year, and there may be one that will evolve. There's certainly some very interesting ones, you know, like the right. new Dave Hitch- Hutchins and that kind of thing. And we know that like, come next February, we have Stan Robinson's next new major novel. We right. know that right. we're going to have. A new Charlie Strauss novel. We'll have a new Greg Egan novel. Um, we'll, ha- you know, j- just before the end of the year, we will have a second new Alistair Reynolds novel for the year, uh, before the year is done coming out in the UK, Revenger, following on from the, the Clark, uh, sequel that he did with Steve Baxter. So, th- so well, maybe this right. is just in between year, because it sort of feels like everything's lined up for 2017. And also, I mean, I you're quite, say, sorry, yeah. Uh, the Cam Hurley, no, Cameron Hurley's, uh, the, the stars, uh, what's the title Legion. about that? The stars are Legion, which is now a January book, and that looked like it was going to be. Well, it is still going to be a major book. It's just not going to be a major 2016 book now. Mm. Right. And, and also, with some of the major books, as you say quite rightly, Liza, are second or thirds in series. I mean, uh, the fifth, <laughs> fifth season. I've gone blank on the, the Nora Jemison book. I don't know why I've gone blank. But the Obelisgate. It's on the Obelisgate. Yeah, the Obelisk Gate comes out uh, about now, and it'll be a, a major novel of the year. You know, so mm-hmm. and also some of the stuff is things we've talked about at length before, Gary. Things which are sideways to this. I mean, books like Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff are major books of the year. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a more clearly strong f- f- year of fantasy right now than of science fiction. The one thing I'm, I think that's true. The one thing you're never well, you sure about. about sorry, yeah. No, I was just going to say Gary talked about that in his reviews that have not that will come out tomorrow, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of what did he call the Lovecraft problem? Yeah. Well, I mean, but this well, is, I mean, you, say, you say that, but I mean, <laughs> you talk about the Lovecraft problem, but this is actually an endemic structural thing about science fiction and fantasy and horror because, like, just uh, two days ago, I was rereading James Tiptree's "The Women Men Don't See." Uh, for Worldcon, for the panel we're doing with Michael Swanwick and Keith Johnson, the James Tiffery story. This issue of Asimov's is a major James Allen Gardner story, I think it is, that riffs off the same story. Uh, there are at least three others, Karen Joy Fowler and a handful of others, which riff off exactly the same story. Uh-huh. Uh, at the same time, as we were saying last weekend, there are stories around right now that are riffing off the cold equations, the Tom Godwin story. Yeah. So it's not just Lovecraft. They're... they're one of the things which old people like me sometimes worry about is whether uh, we're losing this idea of dialogue in the field. But I think depending on where it is, you can still see it happening. 
Well, and I think that one of the things, actually, Gary, that is one of the things I love about your review columns is that you usually open your review of a book by placing it in dialogue with other books. You guys were talking about in a previous podcast about how do people find, how do people discover, how do you get back to discoverability on these older classic stories? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like the openings of your review columns are like pairings. Like, like you were saying, if you like this, you might like this. And you don't do that. You just say, I can hear the echoes or the notes of this earlier story or the, the mm-hmm. conversation happening with this earlier story. And it's nice because sometimes I'll go and read that thing that you brought up just to, because it gives you mm-hmm. greater uh, insight into the story that you're viewing. Yeah. Of um, course, when I, uh, my experience of that is, uh, yeah, I, th- that's something I always try to do, and it's always a little bit risky because every time I'm completely and dead wrong, I find out about it, usually from the author I'm talking about. But <laughs> I, I mean, never heard of that writer. How, what are you talking about? Right, but they don't have to have even read it sometimes to have just to be part of the conversation still. Well, yeah, and this is the thing. I, I, I think that to, to go back to a point Jonathan was making, if you talk about the cold equations, or you talk about the women men don't see. There are keynote stories that start discussions. I'm not sure that I mean, and, and Tiptree has a couple of them. This, I think I think the screw fly solution would be another. It's a different thing from a story that becomes a kind of continuing point of discussion from an author who becomes a continuing point of discussion. What's going on with Lovecraft? is each of these writers that we've seen so far are responding to a different Lovecraft story. And in fact, the ones I've read aren't even responding to the most famous Lovecraft stories. So Lovecraft as a thing, as a writer, is somebody you have to constantly grapple with because of all the problematical things about his fiction. That's a different issue. Cordwainer Smith, as a writer, influences all kinds of people. Second, and this is where I think, Eliza, somebody who may not have read Cordwainer Smith has almost certainly read people influenced by Cordwainer Smith. Well, that's that's it can be second-hand or third-hand or third-generation influence, but it's still there. Very much. It's still there. It's a nice thing to be able to refer refer people back to that sort of keystone story or that, that, you know, go, uh, go upstream to a place that they didn't even know existed. Yeah, I haven't figured out yet how to make that work in Locus, where I'm like, and then please pair all of these stories with the classic story that everyone should go read, so that they understand where it came, or not where it came from, but what what that conversation looked like in the fifties. You know, well, these stories that start discussions aren't always starting discussions because they're good stories. The Cold Equations, as I said in this review column coming up tomorrow, has been science fiction's favorite whipping boy for a decade now. I mean, a decade? Everybody feels a decade, Gary. For 30 years, Gary. For th- I mean, oh, for they were, they were beating up the Cold Equations in SFA back, science fiction I back in the 90s. One of the rites of passage about being a science fiction reader these days is you have to write something that points out all the things wrong with the cold equations. It's just part of growing up. It's like an exam. Oh, well, that sounds like So if you want to be a science fiction reader, here's your exam. The cold equation says A, B, C, or D. And the answer is all of the above. Right. <laughs> okay. Let me throw the next so, uh, semi-unfair. Point that? <laughs> I don't know. No, I, <laughs> I think we went... No, 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 what we tend to do is we, we, we sort of approach a subject, we go off to one side, we pursue an, you know, sort of a, a, another sort of strain of the conversation, we lose that thread, end up somewhere else, actually resolve nothing at all, get to the end of the hour and go, you see, that was a conversation. But, but to actually circle around this whole idea of maybe books that we're looking forward to come, you know, we're looking forward to that are coming uh-huh. out. You know, we're here in the end of July, a month where we've seen Nina Allen's uh, debut novel, The Race, in an expanded edition. See its U.S. publication. We've seen Indra uh, Indra Das's book, The Devourers, come out. We've seen the second Rourke Davidson novel come, come through. We've seen a Jeff Ford collection. Uh, we've seen Angela Slatter's debut novel, Vigil, come out in the U.K. and here in Australia. We've seen the Vandermeer's enormous book of science fiction. The mm-hmm. the the what is the the big, impressive, enormous, very good in overwhelmingly huge, tiny-type, big book of science fiction. That was the one book that I was going to say you didn't bring up that I 
think is very interesting. I think it's very interesting. Justina Robeson has something coming up. She does. So, so I mean, like, it's been an interesting month, and I think at some point we're going to have to unpack the big book of science fiction. Um, I've not seen a physical copy of it yet. I hear it's intimidating. It is. It's big. It's like a telephone book. Like, mm. so. And the pen is tightly typeset, so there's no... It's, Maybe one it's of those forget- books that, that can be embraced digitally as well as... Um, as, as, as in physical copies, but I'm curious with, with the month we've had behind us, which is a diverse, varied month. Uh, what kind of books are you looking forward to in the coming months? I suppose in the next six to nine months. Uh, I've got a few titles I have in mind. I'm trying to be fair to everybody and sort of give people a chance to sort of gather their thoughts. Would you like to go first, Liza? Would you like to follow on from Gary? Um, I mean, I. I'm I'm interested to see Justina Robeson's next book. She hasn't had anything out in a while. I'm reading Cross right now, as I said. Um, Steph Swainton is coming out with something. I'm looking in the UK listings now. That's been a while since she had a new book out. Yes, it's been it's been a while. It's been a while. Um, let me see. You know the. Um, my upcoming interviews are have been with people who have books coming out. Like we just interviewed Charlie Strauss, so I got to read um, his latest Laundry Files, and I'm going to interview Tomas Oldehuvelt on Monday for Hex. So there's, um, you know, I mean, I think there's interesting stuff, but I do think a lot of it. I think the hard part for me is a lot of it is in series, and if I'm not reading the series, I'm not. And, and, well, yeah, and that, that tends to resi- resist. Hang on a second. It tends to resist the attempt to just step into it, doesn't it? You know, if if you didn't read, you know, the first of the uh, Nora Jemison books, it, it feels harder to read the Obelisk Gate. And my understanding, she herself would say, you need to have read the first book before you read uh, the Obelisk Gate. And yet, it's plainly say one of the major books of August. And I'm going to guess that it's really probably going to be necessary to have read the first Ada Palmer novel before the second one comes out, the, the Seven Surrenders comes out in, in December. And just based on the ending of the first half, it seems to me this is the second half of an extended story. Let me ask a question about both, both of you keep up with things going on better than I do because you're better connected. But one writer I've long admired has two novels coming out from Orbit uh, is Ken McLeod. Uh, the Corporation Wars, apparently two volumes in a series. What is that? It's two volumes in a series, Gary. Uh, I mean, it's out here locally, and um, and I know that I was talking mm. to a bookstore. It said it comes like almost like in an odd library edition, a small scale library edition. Uh-huh. I've not physically seen it yet. Uh, I know it's his return to space opera, and his, uh-huh. his work is always interesting. But also, I, I know it's not been simple to get a hold of for review, frankly. So huh. I think it, it's it's a series we're we're still sort of learning about. Right. I haven't seen any copies of it, so. But the, his earlier novels, The Star Fraction, were just very interesting, politically sophisticated novels located somewhere, I would say, between Ian Banks, who was his yeah. childhood friend, and M. John Harrison, who writes also. Somebody once described uh, Ken McLeod as the only Scottish Presbyterian Trotskyite science fiction writer, <laughs> uh, which always made for interesting ideologies conflicting in his novels, but they were I thought they were terrific. I thought that he was... Uh, he looked to me like he was going to be one of the major political space opera hard SF writers, um, and he hasn't been heard from for a while. Well, I mean, that's half true. I mean, he, he did that kind of Greg Bear, Gregory Brentford kind of thing, where he went off and he, he wrote a, ser- he did a, a handful of books which were almost contemporary political science fiction, science, science thrillery kind of titles. And so this mm. is his return to hardcore science fiction again, which is always an interesting thing to try to do when you've taken that right. step. Didn't I mean? Did he have a uh, U.S. publisher for the last couple books? I, I don't know. I know, that, I know that he's back with Orbit in the U.S. with this one. Yeah, these are Orbit books. But but I, I think they came out from Orbit. I'm fairly sure they did. I would have to look it up. We're, I'm working from memory. I mean, looking at books that are coming up, and I, I mean, there's the, obviously there's the Obelisk Gate. I know there mm-hmm. uh, right. readers can be very excited about the Mary Cowell Ghost Talkers, which I think is the last in that series. 
and some great oh. great short story collections. I mean, the, uh, the Warcon guest of honor Michael Swanwick has his new short story collection out uh, in time for Warcon. And then you've got things like it's really interesting to see the first new Peter Beagle novel in a decade or more. Hey, summer. Yeah, summer yeah. long, which I read in an early mm-hmm. edition half a decade ago or more. But which really? Was, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was originally supposed to come out from Nightshade. They bought it. I read it. He pulled it, and now it's coming out from Tachyon. Except for the ending, because uh, I, 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 I do go back and do research. Except for the ending, he describes the entire plot of that novel in a Locus interview from something like a decade ago. Yeah. Um, so it's it's clearly been going so around. Of that, I mean, that. and that's coming at the same time as the Ken McLeod book. Um, there is one book which mm-hmm. I think is going to be moved, uh, Lunar, Lunar Wolf Moon by Ian MacDonald, I think is now a 2017 title, uh, and that would have been that one was, of the major science fiction books of the year. Right. Um, I'm also, I'm also, sorry, 2017, sorry. I'm actually also kind of confused. I, I, I haven't seen a new Adam Roberts book listed uh, since um, The Thing, uh, and I would have thought that there would have been a new one by now because, you know, Adam tends to be fairly... Uh, prolific and productive. Mm-hmm. So, so I'll be keeping an eye out for that because I mean, his last book, Richie, really was really terrific. Some of, whilst a lot of the most interesting fantasy and slipstream materials coming out of the states, a lot of the most interesting science fiction is coming out of the UK, and he's writing some of it. Some really, really good stuff. I think that's, that's, that's obviously where the switch, the Justina Robson book, is coming out as well from from Golans and um, you know, the, the editing team there. Um, yeah. and the, the, I don't see any coming from the new Adam. Novel sorry, you don't see any what? Sorry? Oh, no, it's uh, just I was looking to see if I could find anything, and I'm not. Yeah. Well, the other, a first novel, which will be uh, widely anticipated because uh, it's because it's Nisi Shaw, who's been around for so yeah. long, writing very provocative kinds of things, a very effective editor, writing teacher. She edited stories for Chip. She had her... Uh, Collection of stories out Filterhouse. Her first novel is a is an is a is a steampunk alternate history, which uh, is uh, the first one I've seen set in in Africa. I may be wrong about that, but it, uh, it, it it's a very interesting, very ambitious novel, and it's coming out um, I guess in September. Yep. Yeah, we just interviewed her, so I think she'll be in the. I think she's in the next issue. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. That's a book we're thinking about talking about on the round table as well, so which obviously is a companion to this this, this podcast. Yeah. Um, I see. It's it's interesting to ponder the fate of writers who were big in previous decades at the moment. How they're going? I mean, November we'll see publication from two of the biggest names of the '80s and early '90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg Bear publishes the third and final book in his trilogy that he's been doing, a book called Take Back the Sky. Which I think has sold very well, but I, it doesn't seem to have grabbed the 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 dialogue of the field very much. It seems to have happened successfully over in one kind of uh, cordoned off area, if you like. Uh, and I'm interested that he doesn't his work hasn't lately seemed to grasp the conversation the way that it used to, uh, as good as it may be may be. And similarly, Bruce Sterling has a novella coming out from Tachyon called Pirate Utopia that I'm really looking forward to. But he I just received that in the mail. Yeah. He has not a new novel out mm-hmm. in a decade and no prospect uh-huh. of one. So it's, it's sort of interesting to see how things evolve. Has anybody seen the uh, Lauren Bucus collection? Uh, I think it's I, I just received going. it in the mail yesterday. Yeah, yeah. You did? Yeah. I had that together with the uh, with the, and it, it looks very interesting because I have not read very much, if any, of her short fiction, yeah. and her novels are very interesting. She's one of those writers who seem to move successfully into thriller mode with the Shining Girls, and so yeah. she's been. She started out with very dramatic uh, science fiction fantasy debuts uh, with Zoo City and, um, and and the other one. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm anxious to see what her short fiction looks like. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that I have read any either, but I did like her novels. I mean, one possible book that could end up being a major book for the year, and I suppose hence a major uh, contender for the Hugos, uh, December we'll see the publication of the next Robert Charles Wilson novel last year. <laughs> and Robert Charles Wilson is always reliably an engaging, entertaining, pro- provocative, interesting writer to read. 
So it'll be interesting to see what that's about. This is, of course, along the same time that uh, James Corey is winding up his Expanse series uh, with the right. final book in that set, uh, a book called uh, Babylon's Ashes, which I'm sure will be vastly popular and put onto Christmas trees all around the world <laughs> kind of thing. Do you know anything about the Robert Charles Wilson? All I have is a title and a publication date. But, I mean, that's often the case this far out. You know, right. and, and they're like, he seems to, it, it, I, I, I think Robert Charles Wilson is one of the major contemporary writers and has been for some time, but he does seem to have two modes. So there, there, there's the large scale, the classic uh, spin kind of novel, which is just mind blowing. And he's very good at that. Uh, and his last novel was much more uh, restrained and much more kind of near future uh, social media. I forget the title of it offhand. Um, so there, there's what I think of as the ambitious. They're all, as you say, very well written, very well plotted, very extremely well developed characters and family relationships. The dialogue is convincing and that sort of thing. But sometimes he does this on the large, mind blowing scale of a novel like Spin, and sometimes he pulls it back and writes a more domestic version of, of his fiction. So I don't know which this will be. I'm always interested when a new novel that comes out to find out is this going to be. The domestic Charles, or is this going to be the fireworks, uh, Robert Charles? <laughs> well, this, might be that book, this might be that book that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just look, not until December. But also, well, and, and then suddenly you're in the new year, and it's January. I think that's the new Charles Stross book, Empire Games, comes out, which mm-hmm. is the first in his new book of the family cycle that he did. Uh, and I think looks to be another entry point into his oeuvre. And that's all, always interesting. I am really fascinated just to see that the uh, first quarter of next year will see the first George Saunders novel come out. A book That'll called, be very interesting. A book called Lincoln in the, in the Bardo. Uh, and that should be fascinating. I mean, he's always of interest to science fiction and fantasy readers, always producing something provocative, thoughtful, and different. So I'm looking forward to that. Another book coming out from Tor in February, speaking of people who were at the center of the dialogue some decades ago, is a new novel from Norman Spinrad. There is indeed. Uh, and that should be The People's Police. Uh, and again, the fact that it's a Tor novel is interesting. The title is interesting. Uh, he's always been a provocateur, although in he's always been a provocateur in terms of American politics. And I want to see if if even <laughs> even Norman Spinrad can keep up with American politics this year. <laughs> what you want a, a book coming out called "The People's Police," possibly a month after Donald Trump becomes uh, the you know, the president of the United States. <laughs> That's a fairly terrifying thought, if you if you don't mind me saying. It's terrifying. It's not terrifying. It's not terrifying. Let's clarify. It's not terrifying that there's a new Norman Spinrad novel. <laughs> yeah. Only that it might only that it might be true. There you go. <laughs> But I mean, it, it seems like whilst we're casting around right now for the idea of the major book, and I mean, obviously it's, you never know what the major books are going to be. Nobody really knew, for example, that say Paolo Bacigalupi's debut would be as big a book as it was. And you always want to, and I think it's really important for us, particularly people like us who are commentators, reviewers, whatever else, gatekeepers to some degree, if you like. To be open to those unexpected books to be the major books of the year, rather than simply sort of, because like, I could sit here and say, as I did at the beginning of this discussion, New York 2140 by Stan Robinson is likely to be one of the major science fiction novels of 2017. It seems, oh yeah. Not that you're trying to make it become true, just that extrapolating from previous years when his major books, his books have been major. But that said, you know, you want to remain open to first novels that you know are coming out. Just as Charlie Jane's book did this January, which which I think we will see all over awards through 2017. Um, right. Just as uh, I mean, I expect to see the Yoon Ha Lee book over awards, you know, next year. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it'll be interesting to see who delivers. It's like um, Sam Miller will have his debut novel come out next year. Well, and that's that, the thing that everyone. Everybody's very excited by that new author that breaks through and and surprises people, or that you only read that you've never even heard of before, and they and they blow your mind, or you read some short fiction and didn't even know they had a novel coming, or you know whatever it is. I think those are 
you know, it's fine to say, yeah, well, we know we have this stable of authors that are reliable and we know that they will put something out that I, that we will enjoy reading, but the exciting thing is really that. Sometimes and, it's that. And, and our role as gatekeepers, if you want to use the term, is one that makes me very nervous because mm -hmm. my sense of, of being involved, at least as a reviewer, as a critic, or as, as somebody on the podcast, my sense has always been that we can open gates, but we can't close them. In other words, if somebody is going to become popular, you cannot stop it. I have, I have, I have devoted some columns to trying years ago to trying to stop Michael Crichton. You can't stop Michael Crichton. <laughs> all, all you can do is wait for him to die. Which I did. Oh no! Oh, that was just the cheeriest but, thing you could possibly you, you, say, Gary. You, you mentioned the Wind Up Girl. The Wind Up Girl came out from from Nightshade, from a publisher that didn't have a huge budget. It didn't have a lot of way from what it, 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 it got the book in the right hands. But the wind up girl was discovered by the readers. Right. There have been it a lot of power. Yeah. It has its own inertia. Yeah. And that you can't do, you know, people sometimes I think think that locusts, for example, can, can make or break people or can seriously alter the path of someone's career. But I don't think. You know, I think at best we can point readers to books that we see that are quality books, but I think really, like you said, a book's gonna, gonna make itself. You know, and some of them against, you know, surprising odds, like Nightshade having Wind Up Girl and I think pretty minimal distribution at that time and they, they weren't doing press or, uh, print runs and still, you know, it, it, it made his career, it certainly launched it. Absolutely. And look, I think we're all willing to be Machiavellian masterminds. It's just really the field isn't much interested. Well, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. That's... You're allowed to say, Quiet. speak for yourself, you lunatic or something right now, and actually protect yourself as best you can. I mean, I find the idea comical and absurd, as I'm sure you do, not because you have a better idea, as maybe I do slightly, how the, how the bread is baked. You know, the idea that we can do anything but more than stand on a hilltop and point over there and go, that looks interesting. That's really right. all we can guys, do. Hey, guys, hey, <laughs> Look at that. Look at that. And sometimes yeah. they go, we were going there anyway. And sometimes they go, what are you talking about? I mean, I, 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 I will never forget, right? In 1997, when I joined Locust for the very first time, in, I think, the first review column that I ever wrote, I wrote, I reviewed a book mm. by Paul Preuss called Secret Passages, which was frankly Welcome. overwhelmingly one of the oh. best science fiction novels of that year and one of the best novels of the decade. But, and, and I said so in the review and tried to say so in my end of the year review and the world just went, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well done. And, and went on about its business and that'll happen, you know. I mean, what yeah. you do hope though you can maybe Get a little bit of attention for something that's worthwhile, and make a little no, I mean, bit of interest. I think we can. I think we can, but I don't think that we can uh, that we can actually alter the path of people's careers significantly no. the way that no. I think some people that that it happens. Well, but there are too many of, of Charles's friends who were his favorite authors and never made any money yeah. for me to believe <laughs> he could do that. You know, he he would have if he could have, and it couldn't happen. You know, he can't do that. Hang on, wait a yeah. second. Yes, of course we can. We're coming to Worldcon and we need people to buy us drinks. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure we can, we, we can definitely change your career. Absolutely. All I know is we that we are the secret, secret, albeit useless, masters of panic. <laughs> I mean, nothing, nothing we do matters, but nobody knows we do it, so it's okay. Or is the secret right. masters of pro, of, of protum, which make us smops? Which is even that worse than even smoke, worse, I guess. <laughs> Wouldn't you want to be a smoke? Uh, my, no. my general feeling, and this is not just true in the science fiction field, it's, 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 it's true of publishing and it's, it's true of media, it's true that by and large, the whole process of publicity and criticism and marketing and distribution and reviewing, um, probably can do very little harm, uh, really, despite what writers think. Uh, it can do some good, um, but there's small movements in either direction. I mean, if you talk to any mainstream writer, or especially any genre writer, who has ever been reviewed by Machiko Kakatami in the New York Times, they know 
what it feels like to be slammed. She does not like most of what she reads. She does not like anything that resembles genre. Uh, and when she, in, in, in her, her reviews, the New York Times seem to have no power at all. It's not like theater reviews. You know, a Broadway theater opens up, and if, if it gets bad reviews, it can close. But you can't do that with a book. And, and extra, even extrapolating to, like, publishers' marketing and publicity support, if they could actually, if they were really a formula and if they followed the formula, they would get a bestseller every time. Every book they put out would be a bestseller. It's just not how it works. No. You know, so... Yeah, we do what we can. Do you know what this conversation is a testament to? That we enjoy talking to one another and it's great, but that, yeah, <laughs> although we're like nine minutes and 30 seconds from the end of a 60 minute podcast, we're casting around now. <laughs> oh, no, we've, talk, we've talked around. We've just talked, say we can't stay on point to save our lives. <laughs> and, and, and they let us on panels. <laughs> uh but no, I mean, actually, this year, normally when I go to a convention, I end up doing a best of the year panel. You know, how has the year been going? You know, has it been a good year for Asimov's and FNSF and Tor.com and Analog and all those kind of things? And you're kind of going, yeah, I guess. Right. Um, well, I mean, yeah, who's doing those panels? I don't know. This I mean, year, nobody. I don't think they're, I, I think they've got faded out of sort of popularity. There may be one around. I know that I'm doing a couple of panels. I don't, uh, I don't know about you guys. We might have complained too much about doing those panels. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe we have to start talking them up again so we get asked to come back and do them. I think I'm doing one oh. on the state of Australian science fiction, which is going to be a very difficult panel. I'm not going to prepare for that. And the, the reason that I, just to let you know that I think it's a difficult panel for me to do is, as an Australian who wants to support Australian science fiction, I think Australian speculative fiction is in fine good health, but Australian science fiction, uh-huh. I'm not sure is. I think we've spent mm. 20 years promoting and developing creators of dark fiction, of fantasy, of whatever else, and much less time providing markets that attract new and original science fiction in this country. And so I don't want to talk things down, but I think it's an interesting kind of crossroads here. Uh, I think it's always an interesting thing where the most, well, the, the major and most, you know, the best known writers in an area are still the same ones who were around 20 or 30 years ago. And the, those names haven't changed much in that area. Elsewhere in science, in, in the Australian field, they have. So that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm also supposed to do one on the state of short, short fiction, which I never know what to say any, you know, about anymore because it's such a strange, strange thing now, you know, with a trillion billion stories published. They, 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 some people make money, some people don't, some stories get read. Uh, and you, I mean. That are either paying or not, but everybody's getting published. Yeah. And as, as we move well, towards a point where they have to abandon you, know, you almost pra- practically have to abandon things like the, the short fiction categories and things because nobody's reading the same stuff anymore. So it just gets very, very difficult. Well, uh, what do you say, Gary? And, and, and the question that I have, which seems to be uh, something that's becoming more and more evident, um, given the novellas that are published by, by Subterranean, by Tor.com, uh, Paula Grant has the year's best science fiction novella collection out. You had two very long novellas in your year's best. Is a novella becoming like the default form now? It's, uh, there seem to be more novellas than ever before. I'm sure that's not true, but they're being published as individual books, and some of them published as novellas. Uh, one example is uh, China Meables, The Last Days of New Paris. It's labeled a novella. 30 yeah. years ago, that would have been a novel. This would have been a shortish novel. Um, and it seems like the novella is now everywhere. Yeah. Well, it's funny because there was a lot of talk about how it it was burgeoning because of the digital publishing, that it was yeah. a, a facet of losing the constraints of print publishing, and yet it's they're in anthologies and they are being published in print editions. In fact, they're making good money, I think, for people in print editions, um, at least more money than people would have thought 10 years ago a novella would make, and I just... It's it's an interesting thing to me that 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 little that turn where suddenly novellas became a more popular length was predicated at least theorized that it was about digital publishing, but it's not limited to that at all. It could be. I remain completely unconvinced about this. Not yeah. only is not only is, is Paula Garan's 
admirable and worthwhile and worthy uh, novella anthology series, the third such thing, not the first. But the oh. Tor, Tor.com novella program is the second Tor.com nove Tor novella program, not the first. Uh, publishers like Subterranean, publishers like Pierce Publishing, uh, small press publishers through the 80s and 90s regularly and always published novellas. Uh, Analog, Asimov's, FNSF have always published novellas at about the same rate. And when the time comes for us to do our, uh, you, you know, recommended reading lists, we always recommend somewhere between 15 and 20 uh, novellas roughly every year. Mm. I'm Are you not, Gary and I all of it? <laughs> I'm saying that there is an enthusiasm for novellas right now. And yeah. people are talking novellas up, and to some degree there's a bit more money in them right now than there was. But when you actually go back and look at the volume of them being published, it hasn't changed that much. Now, should the okay. Tor.com publishing lineup get to the scale they talked about it being, where they're publishing 40, 50, 60, 70 a year, which it hasn't quite got to yet, then maybe that will be, it will be more the case. I certainly think... There are. You think it's just there's more visibility because Tachyon has a pro, is doing it, and Subterranean's doing it, and Tor.com. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think there's some more interesting. Actually, what I think is probably interesting is that there is sufficient publisher interest that probably for the first time it's challenging to find novellas to publish. Hmm. That's interesting, and I think it's also interesting that we are probably for the first time in my career seeing novellas going exclusively into into book form and being held there. I mean, two of the best novellas of last year are in none of the year's bests because they were contractually picked up, and that was that. So right. Slow Bullets by Al Reynolds and The 4,800 by Greg Egan were locked into uh, book-only editions, which is perfectly fine, but, you know, means that the, the, the year's bests don't reflect that. Right. And you, I think you will see more yeah. of that sort of a thing. But I'm not sure. I think one of the that this does happen though. When you have this kind of a market, uh, and 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 the fact that you can actually have a book. One of the other forthcoming novellas we didn't mention was Ellen Clages in 2017. But I think that this encourages writers because I've talked to writers who didn't like to write novellas because you're taking time away from writing a novel that will actually make you money. Some of them are now saying, I. I, it's worthwhile to write long, short fiction because I can now get a decent amount of money for it. Tim Powers has published two novellas in the last year, and he hardly published any before in his life. I, I, I have a sort of sad take on that, which is that the advances for novels have gone low enough. That too. That, that, okay. that, that publishing a novella now is actually competitive with the low end of a, of a novel. Yeah, I think somebody could do some reasonable analysis on this, on the, I guess, guess what, payment per word. I mean, certainly for a successful novelist, I mean, a genuinely successful novelist who's getting a, mm -hmm. say, high five-figure or better advance for his novels or her novels, uh, novella-length fiction probably doesn't make mm -hmm. sense. It's still not paying no. enough. Mm -hmm. um, but for somebody else, yeah, it, it can be profitable. And given that, a, a small press to independent publisher may only be paying a couple of thousand dollars for a novel. It's right. entirely mm -hmm. possible that you could end up at Tor.com getting paid more for your short, for your novella than you did for your novel. And of course, Tor.com is also publishing novels. I mean, I edited a Walter John Williams book called Impersonations that's coming out in October. And it's 55,000 mm -hmm. words long. So, I mean, it's, it's a novel. Mm -hmm. You know, so there, there, there's things around. But we shall have to wait. I to think as a press mm -hmm. reader, I find it very refreshing that we don't have to only read the, you know, 150,000 to 300,000 word novels. For a little while, it was, it was bleak. Yeah. yeah. Now, this is a conversation we're going to pick up in a bar somewhere in about two weeks, aren't we? <laughs> Probably. Also, as, as we get to that rare sort of concatenation of, of things, we're actually in the same physical location for four or five days for the one time in the year that happens. So, well, at the beginning of this conversation, it was the sun was coming up for you, or had just come up for you, was going down for me, and had already gone down for Gary. Yes. So, and now it's nearly noon here in in WA, which means it must be nearly midnight where you are, Gary, or eleven o'clock or something. It's ten thirty nine p.m. according to what I'm looking at now. There so you go. 
and it's mid evening where you are. But we we will I will we'll see you I will see you both in, in in a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to it. In a couple of weeks. Absolutely. And we, we we shall we shall maybe do a no, I don't know if we will. I was gonna say maybe we'll we'll have a discussion about the outcome of the Hugo Awards, but yeah, I don't know. Bye. We'll see how we do. <laughs> yeah, we'll have a think oh, about it, shall we? Is this, is this going up tonight? Do you, uh, it'll probably go tomorrow. Just... Tonight or tomorrow. So tomorrow is the deadline for Hugo Awards voting. So if people haven't voted, they should go vote. Yes. If they are members of Mid American Two, they should go vote right yes. away. Yes, exactly. Just do that. Vote. Uh, be heard. I don't know how you're going to describe this. This is going to be like a potpourri of topics. <laughs> It'll be a chat with Liza, with Liza Tromby, the editor-in-chief of... of Absolutely. Catching up with what's going on. It's been wonderful to get to talk to you. We don't get to do it often enough. Thank you very much. And Gary, I guess we'll talk um, next week before we go on hiatus again. I love hiatus. Hiatus is the best thing. <laughs> well, yeah, your hiatus got to be in, 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 in Italy, in Tuscany, looking out on a villa, hey, enjoying Gary. wine and pasta. <laughs> I'll hiate anywhere. I'm, I'm, you know, look, I'll hiate at home, you know, like, but anyway, until okay. then, talk to you until soon. Then. See you soon, Liza. It is, I'm sorry, I'm just going to a word here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Until next week, until we see, see you, Liza, in, in sunny Kansas City and Gary, and until next week. Until next week. We are the Pod Cood Street Podcast. What a shame. All right. <laughs> Cood Street Podcast. <laughs> Did you say that?